Julian Donkey Boy by Harmony Corinne. One of the things that a filmmaker has to do when they make a Dogma 95 film, or I should say made since no one is officially making them anymore, is submit a, quote, confession of ways the filmmaker broke the vow of chastity. This means that he or she didn't follow in the Dogma 95 playbook. For those wondering what Dogma 95 even means, this was a filmmaking movement in the late 1990s and early 2000s, where the idea was, let's throw the conventional playbook for film filmmaking out the window. Not only that, let's throw it in the shredder. The list of rules is too long to put down here in full, but in this manifesto, yes, it was called that, Danish filmmakers Thomas Vinterberg, who would make the Cannes winner The Celebration, a great film by the way, and Lars von Trier, who would make The Idiots as his entry. The essence was this. Strip away all the things that made filmmaking such a fake process. Shoot on real sets. Don't make a genre movie, i.e. thrillers or horror movies or whatnot. The camera must be handheld, so none of those fancy pants things like dolly tracks or cranes. The film must be in color. No artificial lighting, so all lights from the sources that the filmmakers have lying around are used. Music cannot be used unless it's in the scene being shot. So sorry, Morricone, you're out. And the director must not be credited. I'm sure there are more rules and such, which may or definitely may not have been applied by Harmony Corinne when he wrote and directed, uncredited, Julian Donkey Boy in 1999. But that's not why I bring up the vow of chastity right up front. No, I bring it up because, I must confess to you, I broke a potential so-called vow of chastity with the cinema immersion tank. I did not watch this film five times in five days, as was the ideal specified. I did watch it five times, ultimately, over a week and a half. If I have any explanation or reasons for this, I could pin it on things in the real world, keeping me from committing to the viewing per day. Things like my day job or television taking up hours that was in real time, thanks DNC. But if I had to reach into the depths of my soul, it was because this is a difficult film to get through more than twice. Is it because it has a challenging plot or intricacies that make it impenetrable to the human consciousness? No, not exactly, unless you're especially looking for them. Julian Donkey Boy is just a profoundly ugly film to endure. This isn't depended as being necessarily good or bad. Many films have looked ugly or been shot or presented in tones that are gray or muddy or shot in a handheld style or have special filters, which this one does, and I'll get to that soon. But it's more about the emotional reaction. And yet it's ironic as the same thing that made it uh, difficult for me. Uh, after a long day of work or doing this or that, to come home and sit down and say, all right, time to pop in Julian Donkey Boy, and no, just no. I gotta go vacuum the floor or clean the bathroom or something else, is what attracted me to the challenge of watching it so many times in the first place. Some context is in order. Harmony Corinne has directed five theatrically released feature films and a slew of commercials, music videos, and other odds and ends that you might find possibly in your attic or trash can, possibly because he left it there for you to find. While his main break was scripting the 1995 controversial teen sex drama Kids, which is a terrific film in its documentary realistic approach, 
He made his name with the 97 film Gummo, named after the Marx brother. Sure, why not? And it's about a small town in the aftermath of a tornado. And it is weird. Really fucking weird. With a capital W and capital I and capital D. In my original review, which I dug up from 2004, I said it was like Howard Stern crossed with Ingmar Bergman. Shot with complete austerity, uh, a real eye for composition, and featuring the grossest, craziest, fact-up things people might do. An art house flick with white trash, or the other way around. Unique, but unpleasant. He continued through things like Mr. Lonely, which is about fame and, at one point, nuns falling out of airplanes. Don't worry, Werner Herzog is there to explain why, and Herzog will come up in Julian, of course. And Trash Humpers, which I've not seen. That's about uh, old people screwing around a small town. And then he made Spring Breakers, which, well... Look at my shit. I got, I got shorts, every fucking color. I got designer t-shirts. I got gold bullets. Motherfucking vampires. I got Scarface. On repeat. Scarface on repeat. Constant, y'all. I got escape. Calvin Klein escape. Mix that shit up with Calvin Klein B. Smell nice. I smell nice. Ain't a fucking bed. That's a fucking art piece. My fucking spaceship. USS Enterprise on this shit. I go to different planets on this motherfucker. Me and my fucking Franklin's here. We take off. Fucking take off. Look at my shit. Look at my shit. I got my blue Kool-Aid. Oh, you got your Kool-Aid. I got my fucking nunchucks. I got shurikens. I got different flavors. I got them. I got their size. Look at that shit. I got size. I got blades. Look at my shit. This ain't nothing. I got, I got rooms of this shit. I got my dark tanning oil. So Corinne is someone who is truly out of the box when it comes to modern American filmmakers completely fearless when it comes to anything conventional though he once said he wanted his films to play in mainstream theaters at malls to reach as wide an audience as possible and truly unabashedly doesn't care what you think of his work except that maybe you find some or most of his antics funny at times he's truly a strange duck and i picked this film made as his entry into the dogma 95 movement his sophomore feature, which fit his sensibilities of flying in the face of the established film world as something that could challenge me, that I could dig in and see what he was really trying to do with his work, regardless of if it worked or not. And actually, if it did not work, why watch films for this project if I know I'm going to love or enjoy them immediately? What is this story for a movie with a rather ungainly title? Frankly, my dears, there isn't one. Certainly not in the slightest traditional sense. In the official synopsis on various websites, it says it's a portrait of a schizophrenic in his family, or a portrait of schizophrenia in the family. But portrait may even be too strong a word. The experience of this film, which stars train-spotting Spud, Ewan Bremner, as the title character, Chloe Savigny as his very pregnant sister, Pearl, Evan Newman as his brother, Chris, who always wrestles, and Bavarian mastermind Werner Herzog as their father, is more like flipping through a scrapbook, shot in grainy, early-era digital video, and then, and this is true, transferred to 8mm film before being blown up into 35mm film stock, 
in the lives of a truly dysfunctional unit. Or, to put a finer 21st century point on it, it's closer to when you find on YouTube a playlist of video sketches and episodes in the lives of these characters which amount to, well, what exactly? A conclusion I reached after only my first viewing, and it didn't change much to the fifth, is that I'm not sure it'll be clear to everyone that Julian is a schizophrenic. Then again, that may not be a crucial point for Corinne. The character is inspired by his own uncle, who he originally wanted to cast in the film as the lead, but he couldn't get out of the institution, oddly enough. And the gist is simple. Julian is not the cookie-cutter nut job from so many films that feature someone with a heavy mental illness. He's not, shall one say, lovable, like uh, Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. And hey, that's a point in favor for the film. Show a person as the protagonist, or whatever that term means for a project like this, who's the kind you may know have seen on the streets of a city or subway, talking to him or herself. Total gibberish and nonsense, but hey, not exactly nasty about it, just loony. Pull, pull, pull. Mm-hmm. I got a, I got a, I got a poem. Want to hear it? Yeah. Can I, can I read a poem? Okay. Midnight chaos, eternity chaos, morning chaos, eternity chaos, noon chaos, eternity chaos, evening chaos, eternity chaos, midnight chaos, eternity chaos. Morning chaos, eternity chaos, noon chaos, evening chaos, eternity chaos, midnight chaos, eternity chaos, morning chaos, eternity chaos, noon chaos, eternity chaos, evening chaos, eternity chaos, midnight chaos, eternity chaos, noon chaos, evening chaos, eternity chaos, midnight chaos, eternity chaos. Julian, cut it out. Morning chaos, eternity chaos. I repeat, chaos, chaos, chaos. You don't even. It doesn't even rhyme. Rhyme with chaos. Rhyme with chaos. Okay, come on. No, come on, stop that. That's not a poem. And I'm, and I'm finished. What kind Midnight. of a poem is that? Come on, it doesn't, it doesn't even rhyme. You repeat chaos, 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 and it doesn't even rhyme. Chaos. How about that? Midnight. Come on, sh- no. Come on shut up. Shut up. Shut and up. I, I don't like it because it's so artsy-fartsy. We've seen people like that. An unsympathetic, wild, free-reeling, and unpredictable person for us to get into is a challenge that reaps rewards. I like that aspect in Bremner committing so completely in his repetitions, such as when he tells a poem at the dinner table with the word chaos repeating over and over, to which his hard-headed red meat father decries as, it doesn't even rhyme. And by the way, this artsy-fartsy moment that the Herzog dad describes is followed by him telling about the climax of Dirty Harry, as if it's the most intense thing no one's ever seen or heard of before. You see, I, I like the real stuff. I like something like uh, the end of Dirty Harry. I saw this Dirty Harry, and the end is really a terrific shootout. Oh, there was this tremendous shootout. You should better listen. Just listen. Grandmama, listen. Just listen. There was this shootout. Uh, Dirty Harry has this bad guy cornered. I mean, he was a real, real bad guy. And there's this tremendous shootout. They're, they're really exchanging lots of fire. They're, they're shooting bullets at each other and they keep missing. And at the end, the bad guy somehow drops his gun. It's just down there on the, on the bottom. And Harry hovers over him. And now Harry, I mean, he's really full of contempt. 
And Harry standing there is totally full of contempt and he says to him, we have wasted many of our bullets. Do you think there is still a bullet left in your gun? And he says to him, you know, now you've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? And then at that moment, the bad guy lunges for his gun, raises it, and it just does click. Yeah. He's got a bullet left. And Harry blasts him away. He just blasts him into a river. He blasts him. He knocks him off the feet and blasts him away. See, that's, that's good stuff. And I like that everyone else lives in their roles to such an extent that any sense of artificiality is nowhere in sight. And yet that very thing of all those little moments that are scattered throughout here is done to such an extreme, along with the radical, to put it lightly, idiosyncratic, and to put it harshly, borderline dangerous approach to editing camera and occasional, I should say often, bursts of music, there goes that dogma rule, mostly speaking, that it causes some distance for me to connect all the way through. On every viewing, up until maybe the fourth or fifth time, Corinne and company take too much time on minutia, on details that may be hysterical on a surreal ground, but on a more emotional level doesn't stick because of all these, well, is there a cinemum for characters not doing much at all or to fucking around again? How much random nonsense can we take? Maybe the only way to approach something like this is as an experimental feat, where the director and his DP, Anthony Dodd-Mantle, who, for example, of what he's doing here, look to 28 Days Later, only more cracked out, and editor, who it must be noted will down a purported 86 hours of footage from 25 days of shooting into a 95-minute film, are out to chart completely new terrain in cinematic grammar and expression. That's fine as an ideal. In practice, it makes for something that leans to a throw-shit-at-the-wall-and-see-what-sticks experience. And this was past the initial viewing, where the aspect of random transitions, still images put to discordant tones, and when the people on screen just hang around, sing to themselves, dance with themselves, walk in dazed states at night, got less startling or the mood wasn't the same. I mean that in my search to try to find deeper meanings, simply... I'm not sure how deep or profound some of this may be. Note I say some, not all, though. Chiefly, I mean in regard to how Corinne treats religion and faith. We see the church here as the opening scene or segment or whatever is Julian struggling with a little kid over a turtle he repeats to himself, Lamb of God and a small prayer as he... Well, what does he do here? Does he accidentally hit the kid and cover him in the dirt and move along with his life? Or what about when he goes into a confessional booth and asks about why he has such bad thoughts and his mind is so wild and the priest asks him about seeing therapeutic help and Julian says he hasn't and the father offers some guidance and then as he leaves, Corinne flashes to a few shots of a nun masturbating in a room in a frenzy with Julian in a hush to himself whisper, sometimes I have sinful thoughts. Is he? Why would he flash to that? Does he understand religion in his frazzled mental state? And Corinne isn't adverse to set pieces. On the contrary, he gives us images of the two singing sequences, one with gospel that works just because of the energy of the music, 
The other at a, I guess, birthday party for one of the retarded people Julian hangs out with or works with. I'm not sure which by how the movie shows me. Where an organ grinder sounding like a discount Tom Waits sings Amen repeatedly in a spiritual song. But how does it connect to the character's past just telling us Julian and his family, mostly Julian, have faith? What does it have to do with what else happens here? I have one theory, one small one. More on that in a moment. But at the same time, it's a tough thing uh, to put a hard line on. Like, oh, this is all pretentious crap. Who cares? Because Corinne is so outside the box, his attempt to make a funky, insane new box is sometimes exciting. And a lot of this comes, for me, from the moments with Herzog. That's it. Good boy, yeah. Don't scream. I don't want you to scream. This is it. Come on, keep still. Don't shift around. Come on, be a man. Be a man and quit that moody proving. Quit that. So cold. Come over here. Stop. Stop it. Dad. Come on, be a man. It might even seep through your skin and you'll put on some weight. Shut up. Come on, you don't talk like this. Shut up. You don't talk like this. Just be a man. Come on, go down here. Go down, squat down. I had a whimsical thought in my fourth viewing when I started to get bored during certain scenes that maybe this is not really Julian's story. Rather, this is all a story about what happens when real-life Werner Herzog, his character is never named in the film anyway, so he's just Herzog to me, comes home in between his maverick adventures in filmmaking and has to deal with his wrestler son, his schizo son, and his, as he calls her, dilettante slut of a daughter. That amused me greatly, the ideal that Corinne cast Herzog to be himself, and to a large extent, I think he did. And yet he's the one character who can be memorable while not doing much. We never see his character at work. We never see what he does to make money, if he even does. Again, in this framework, doesn't matter, right? Real world, but not. But anyway. So we see him dance to wild blues music, as if he's become the dancing chicken at the end of his own strajic, and drink cough syrup to get messed up, repeating, Am I hypersensitive? from the warning on the bottle. What else does he do here? He's the closest thing, actually, to a villain, you could say. Most of his action focuses on the younger son, Chris, as he is getting him ready for a wrestling match that he will never fight, in this film anyway. And this includes spraying him outside with a water hose when it's cold and calling him a wimp and a coward. Okay, come here. Come here. I don't want this escaping. Just all this moody brooding. I just don't like that. Down, down. Raise your arm. Come on, come closer to me and don't be a coward. I don't want a coward in the family. Come here. You want me to win? You want me to win? Yes, I want you to win and don't be a coward. Don't be a... I'm going to... I'm going to get You're not going to... My son is not going to be a coward. Stop it. Stop. That is going to put some weight on you. Stop that shivering. I don't want you to shiver like that. Don't shiver. You're a man. Okay? 
Don't shiver like that. You're gonna be a winner. Just don't shiver. Seeing this for the first time is a comic moment. And then on each viewing, it got less funny and more sad and bizarre, but not in a humorous way. Until the final viewing, when I saw little nuances and how Herzog would say, moody brooding. And in one of the main confrontations in the film, when he yells at Julian to slap his own face for being so stupid, this is part of the last 20 minutes. Oh. I just can't stand this any longer. Come on, I can't stand this any longer. I might accidentally step no. away on this here. No. Come on, don't try to defend your sister. You just look stupid. I'm back. You're just stupid! You look so stupid. You look utterly and completely and irrevocably stupid. I'm not even You're stupid. so stupid. You I'm look not... so stupid. If I were so stupid, I would slap my own face. Ah, well, I'm not you even made... stupid. Well, I'm not even stupid like you that. Well, I'm face. not even stupid like that. Tell him to slap his face. No. I'm not even stupid like you that. Slap his face. No, no. Julian, relax. Don't no. pay attention to him. No, slap no. his face. No. I ain't gotta be stupid like that. I ain't gotta be stupid like that. I ain't gotta be stupid like that. Tell him to slap his face. No, no, no. Slap your face. You should slap your face. Just, you might even wake up. Just slap your face. No. If I were as stupid. I would slap my own face. Just I'm, tell him to slap his own face. I'm really stupid. Why don't you tell him to slap his own Pearl. face? Just slap your face. Pearl. Just slap your face. I turn my Pearl. back. Daddy. I turn my back and he's going to start to Daddy. slap his face. Daddy. I know you're going to do it because he will wake up. Where the narrative, slap much as it is, face. gains traction. And like, suddenly, much face. of what he's done slap in the story pays off. Like if nothing else, yeah. even or especially Daddy. for those... Elliptical little moments where Herzog talks and talks about things. An anecdote about Pizarro and Peru that wouldn't be out of place in Aguirre. Or his breakfast rituals as a child. He is the highlight of the film. The one that consistently surprised me on every viewing. And was the kind of formidable presence that grounded things in the event that Corinne's style threatens to explode the smithereens, which is sometimes it does. You slap your face. I just can't take it any longer. I just cannot take it any longer. Just don't take it any longer. You hear me? Just sing the song. Just sing, sing, sing. You sing, sing the song. You sing the song. Come on, sing the song. Just can't stand it. I just When I mentioned before about this being like a YouTube playlist, that wasn't meant as an easy to relate to comparison. In some ways, Corinne foresaw the appeal of what YouTube could offer, or the more peculiar and outlandish skits on Funny or Die, and was doing in this film similar tricks that, of all things to compare, the jackass people were up to at the time. Scenes feature the actors with special cameras on their lapels, so that real-life people are in the scene with the actors, all improvised, without them knowing it. But instead of it being a prank or some unreasonable stunt, it's all about capturing behavior, on the fly, in the moment. This level of inspiration can come in handy. And then other times, this completely unpredictable aesthetic of characters going into tangents that may not have to do with anything 
Julian talking with a young girl about James Brown's I Feel Good and saying lines like, I want to die before I die, can be tiresome. And in this world, we get the religious aspect again. Why is Julian so into faith? Why does he cry when he's in that church with the gospel singers, into the mood of it while his family is seated? Deep down, this is a very grim film, and the ugliness comes out of the despair. If there are funny asides and things that Corinne puts in, i.e. Jodorowsky-type figures, like a man with no arms who is great at dealing all aces with his feet in a card deck, and playing drums, that last part is just filler, it's undercut by how morbid and sad this, quote, portrait really is, and to the disturbing lengths that I'm not sure the filmmaker fully comprehends. This is revealed in the heart of the backstory. What's happened before the time frame we're in here, which seems to be roughly a month, more or less. Julian's mother died while giving birth to Chris. We learn this through one of the more effective scenes, the only scene scripted with dialogue, I should add, where Julian talks on the phone with Pearl as if she's uh, his dead mother. Yeah, it's that kind of scene. It's pretty sad. And the baby that's due. Oh, it's Julian's. He's the father. Did that hit you like a bombshell? It certainly did for me. But Corinne doesn't fully show this information, or let us know until near the end. On repeat viewings, it's clearer, but I mean on a first watch. The one most people will give it a chance for. And the fact that Julian and Pearl have committed incest is not, you know, dealt with as far as drama goes until that ending, where things do come to a head. Pearl loses the baby in an accident, and Julian rushes home the baby with him, across bus lines and in public, cradling it in his arms. Was Corinne co cognizant of what he was giving his audience as far as this part of the film? As much as he can and does screw around with all the elements of filmmaking, from the process of shooting it, to developing the footage, to the many, many jagged parts of editing, at one point a fight between Julian and Chris involving dog food has cuts that last less than half a second, over 45 seconds. Just think about that. And I think he missed out on exploring the relationship between brother and sister more. It's there in small pieces, but if you're making a portrait of a family, fractured that it might be, you still need to do the work of developing or showing relationships a little more. He gives time for Dad and Chris, one note as it is, and even Julian and Dad are torn apart since, well, the death of the mother left a chasm. But until near the end, I didn't feel any love or bonding between Julian and Pearl. Make them ancestral siblings. Go for the provocative and fucked up. Please do. But then do a little more of the actual work that goes into the dramatic side. Not simply with the fleeting sketches or moments or things like Pearl walking around in a field humming a hymn or naming names for a baby. In other words, in sum, Julian Donkey Boy is a rather unique experience to sit through five times. My wife couldn't help but ask when I told her I was doing this for this particular film and this particular filmmaker if I was abusing myself in some way. I didn't look at it like that, despite the ambivalence to jump in every night to watch it and my loss of the thread I've had with the other films in the tank structure. It carries things that can be unpacked and analyzed, and yet it also doesn't, 
as far as the throwing at the wall to see what sticks approach comes with making a quasi documentary out of the 86 hours of footage. I still can't fathom that, which is a credit to this crew. It's a bittersweet mess that's caught in a schism, perhaps by design as its main character is as well, between giving us a lot of manic sketches, not full scenes, but sketches of people, mostly non-professionals as well, an aspect Corinne loves in all of his work from Gummo on, just engaging in life, in rapping, singing, making up bullshit, training with plastic garbage cans, and then is also a serious, depressing, melancholic, and even upsetting view into the despair and aimlessness of a family adrift in whatever they got going on, whether it's being mental or wanting to be a mother or having nothing but a bottle questioning one's own hypersensitivity. And as far as experiments go, it's certainly not a failure. It's both brilliant and awful, hard to watch and mesmerizing, awkward, cringe-inducing, lovely, rambunctious, stupid, gross, and a little of that ecstatic truth that Corinne's real lord, Herzog, is often after. P.S. In case you're wondering, in uh, the confession of that vow of chastity uh, that Corinne wrote, uh, surprise, Clay Segni isn't really pregnant in the film. They used a fake belly.